And now, Lord, as we come to Your Word, we remember that Your Word doesn't return to You void. And so we ask, O Lord, that You would bless the study of Your Word, that You would give us understanding, that You would give us conviction, and O Lord, that we would act upon what we learn from Your Word. So we ask, O Lord, to show us our need for Christ, to show us our desperate need for Him, and show us, O Lord, His sufficiency to meet every need. We pray, O Lord, that You would grow us in His likeness through Your Word. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 17. We're going to be moving on to the next verse today. John chapter 17, verse 2 is what we'll be looking at today. As we continue this study in the chapter that I have referred to as the Mount Everest of Scripture. This is an amazing chapter. Uh, I listened to and read several sermons just on verse 2 this week. And let me tell you, you could do a whole series on verse 2. This chapter is just incredibly deep. Uh, But at the same time, it's very thorough. You will see every doctrine uh, in Scripture in this chapter. It's just amazing. So I pray that it's as much a blessing for you as it has been for me so far. But we'll be looking at John chapter 17, verse 2 today. This is a verse that relates to Christ's authority. Now, authority can be kind of a a funny and crazy thing for people. There's a story of Jimmy Carter's daughter that took place while President Carter was still in office. His daughter Amy was still in school, and she was stumped by a, a history question about the Industrial Revolution. And so she did what anyone at her age would do. She went to her mother for help, but her mom was actually just as stumped as Amy was. So instead of uh, disturbing President Carter in his job, uh, Mrs. Carter went to the Labor Department with the question, hoping, hoping that somebody in the Labor Department would be able to help the president's daughter with this question. Well, since the assignment was due on Monday, the person who received the question put a rush on on the question, the person working for the labor department who received the question that had a rush on it feared that it must have been a question that the president himself needed answered by Monday. And so they brought that question to a whole team of technicians and programmers who worked overtime throughout the weekend in an effort to find the answer to this question. And when all was said and done, several hundred thousand dollars have been spent to get the answer to this one history question. All because it was assumed that this question was expedited by presidential authority. Well, Amy Carter turned her assignment in on Monday, and her teacher was not that impressed with it. Her teacher gave her a C. (laughs) But authority can be a crazy and funny thing for people. People fight for it. People sometimes risk everything for authority, as if to value authority over everything and anything else in life. But if there's one thing that proves the futility of having authority, the, the, the lack of value that having authority has, it's that authority ultimately can't be held on to for 
very long. Maybe you'll play king of the hill. And maybe you'll end your life at the top of the hill, or maybe you won't. Maybe somebody will knock you off that hill. In the best case, a person has it for the duration of their life on earth, and then what? Poof. It's gone. All of it. And then what? Well, Scripture tells us of a man known only as... There we're told that he would uh, often amaze and astonish the crowds around Samaria. And he was so good, he was so convincing as a magician that the people around Samaria are even uh, noted to have said of him, this man is what is called the great power of God. But then those people heard Philip preach the gospel to them. And they were converted. Simon uh, himself also heard the gospel. And after seeing signs and miracles um, performed by the apostles, he too was said to have believed and been baptized. But that wasn't enough for Simon. In Acts chapter 8, verses 14 to 19, we read this of him. We read, Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority, there's the word, give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Did I mention that authority or the desire for authority can make people do crazy and funny things? Did I also mention that it can make people do extremely foolish things? It certainly can. As surely as any idol can cause a person to act foolishly. So Peter rebuked Simon immediately, urging him to pray and seek forgiveness for his idolatry and for his covetousness. He thought salvation was about authority. It's not. It's actually about yielding to authority. It's about yielding to Christ's authority. And so Peter urges him to repent and to pray for forgiveness, but Simon unfortunately refused. It turns out if he couldn't have authority, salvation wasn't all that interesting to him after all. Now we've begun our study of the Lord's high priestly prayer that's recorded in the 17th chapter of John's Gospel. In the first verse uh, of this chapter, we saw Jesus pray that He, the Son, would be glorified, but only in order that the Father would be glorified in His death on the cross. But the reason that He prayed that He would be glorified was so that the Father would be glorified. And so today, as we continue to the next verse, as we continue our study of the 17th chapter of John's Gospel, we'll see Jesus claim to have authority, and it will be important for us to think very deeply about why he has authority, about where his authority comes from, uh, the scope of it, the duration of it, the degree of it. The, The point of our lesson today is that because Jesus has authority over us, we would be wise to respond to him in faithful obedience. Now the section of Jesus' prayer that we're looking at is the section in which Jesus is consecrating Himself, 
just as the high priest back in Leviticus chapter 16 was instructed to consecrate himself. Uh, so he's consecrating and praying for himself in preparation for the atoning sacrifice that he is about to make in the hours ahead. And so Jesus, having prayed that He be glorified in order that the Father be glorified, continues praying to the Father in verse 2. Let's look at verse 2 together. Jesus continues saying, "...even as you gave Him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given Him, He may give eternal life." So the, the second verse begins with a very important couple of words for us to take note of. Those words are translated in the NASB 95 as, even as. Uh, this is another way of saying since or because. Uh, if you look at the NIV translation, it says, for you have granted him authority. Or if you look at the ESV, uh, it translates it, since you have given him authority. So that's that's the the, the fuller meaning of even as. It's because. It's a, it's a cause and effect. It's a reason. Both the, the NIV and the, the ESV strike me as being more natural uh, to the way we speak in our vernacular today, so maybe that helps you. But be that as it may, what we see here is that this, this, these two words in the NASB, or the one word in the other translations, uh, connects the first and the second verse in such a way that we should understand the reason that Jesus prayed that He be glorified, that the Father would be glorified. The reason He prayed this is because the Father had given all authority to Christ. That's the reason for His prayer in verse 2. Now notice again what it says. It doesn't say, as you will give Him authority, as if it's something that at some point in the future is going to happen. It doesn't say you are giving him authority, as if at that particular moment he's receiving this authority. No, Jesus says, as you gave him authority over all flesh. It's something that already happened. It's something that as Jesus is praying this, he already possessed from the Father. It's a gift from the Father to the Son. What an incredible gift. But if we're careful to examine this verse, we actually see that this theme of giving, that the theme of a gift, is prevalent in this verse. We see that the Father has not only given Christ, His only Son, authority over all flesh, He's also given Him something else. He's given them the gift of a people. But there's a third one. There's a third use of the, the word give. Christ says that He gives eternal life to those who have been given to Him by the Father. So we'll start by examining this first gift mentioned in this verse. The gift of authority over all flesh that was given by the Father to the Son. The Father will be glorified by the Son because the Father has given the Son authority. Over whom? Over what? What does Jesus say? How far does His authority reach? He says that this authority is over all flesh. Over all flesh. Now, it's important for us to see that Christ 
isn't saying that he has authority over the church, those to whom he gives eternal life, although he certainly has authority over the church, of course. But anyone who clings to or pursues any authority apart from Christ should absolutely trust because there is no man authority over all flesh. Because there is no man, there is no woman so powerful, so individually wealthy or prestigious or high or lofty, no person so famous or wealthy that they will experience a single second of their entire existence in which they are exempt from this authority that Christ has over them. If God has put a person into a position of authority in this world, whether that be a father at home, whether it be a governor, whether it be a president, whether it be elders in a church, if God has put a person into a position of authority in this world, it is only in order that they may exercise their authority to uphold God's own moral standards. That's why when we come to Romans chapter 13, Paul tells us that God has ordained the civil magistrate, that is, the governing authorities, to do what? Well, they get two purposes. They have two purposes. Number one, to protect and to reward those who do good. And secondly, to punish those who do evil. That's the authority that's been entrusted to the government. That's it. Now, you might say, well, the words good and evil... You know, What's good? What's evil? Those terms seem awfully subjective. They're, they're relative terms, aren't they? Uh, or subjective terms. There is only one moral standard. Because there's only one moral authority. That standard is God's Word because God is the one who has all moral authority. And His Word reveals His standards. Christ is the one who has authority over all flesh. All flesh. Christ is King. He alone has authority that nobody else has. Now in English, when, when you hear the word flesh, it says He has authority over all flesh. We usually associate the word flesh with what? With, with our skin, right? Uh, but in the Bible, it's a term that, generally speaking, refers to the entire person, to their to their body, to their soul, to their spirit. Sometimes in the Bible, you'll see that it refers only to a person's skin, but it's far more commonly used to refer to the entire person. For example, we read in Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Now, let's pause there for a second because we need to understand what is meant by flesh there. He took the rib and opened Adam's flesh to get to the rib. So this is obviously a reference to what? To his skin, right? To, to his physical body, to, to his skin. But in the following verses, we read this. We read, The man said, 
This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, Moses kind of puts a a note here to comment. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now when it says that they shall become one flesh, what does that mean? Uh, Now we're not talking about the skin. This is clearly not a reference to physical skin. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce notes that it, quote, does not mean that the man and the woman were to be united sexually only, though that was an important part of their union, but that they were to be united on each level of their being, body, soul, and spirit, end quote. So that's how the word flesh is used in in a kind of figurative sense, prior to the fall. After the fall, the word flesh continues to refer to a person's entire being, but it also includes the constant implication that a person's entire being, their whole person, body, soul, and spirit, is consumed and dominated by sin. That's the nature that every single one of us was born with. That's the nature that we were even conceived with. Now, let's apply this to what Jesus has revealed to us in this prayer. He says that the Father has given him authority over what? Over all flesh. This tells us that Jesus not only has authority over every person, although it does mean that, of course, but it also includes the necessary implication that Jesus has authority even over the fallen, sinful, corrupted nature that so completely dominates a person. And praise the Lord that He does have authority over that. Because if He didn't have authority over yours or or my entire being, then He could not subdue where they rightfully belong. Now we know from other passages in Scripture that, that Jesus has this authority, right? This isn't the only place that Jesus claims to have authority. Uh, so it's not new to us. We know what He said, for example, in the Great Commission, don't we? But what was the basis of the Great Commission? Not only that Jesus has authority over all flesh, which He does, but that He has authority over everything in heaven and earth. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me, therefore. So the basis is the authority that he has over all of creation that he sends us forth with the Great Commission. Now what a splash of cold water this doctrine is in the face of the idea that a person is saved by making Jesus Lord of their life. Listen, you don't make Jesus Lord of your life any more than you make Joe Biden your president. You don't make Joe Biden your president. He is. If you just were talking today, it's not like, okay, right now I'm going to make Joe Biden my president. No, he's already president in the same way. You don't make Jesus Lord of your life. He already is. In fact, he always has been. If anything, what we do is we acknowledge that Jesus is Lord of our lives. And how do we do that? By living in light of His authority. By submitting ourselves to His authority. But either way, let's be very clear about this. A person doesn't do this. They don't make Jesus Lord in order to 
be saved. That would have to do this, and you have to do this, and then you'll be saved. No, the good news of the Gospel is that Jesus Christ has died and risen from the grave. He has done what is necessary for our redemption and for our reconciliation with God. That is good news. The person who is converted has been brought under Christ's sovereign lordship in a new way, yes, but they've been under Christ's sovereign lordship his entire life. He just hasn't acted like it. But, but once he becomes a new creation in Christ, he's able to live in light of that truth. He's able to submit himself to that truth because the power of sin has lost its grip on him and the sinful flesh no longer consumes and dominates him as it once did. He once was blind, blind to to many things, including Christ's sovereign lordship over his life. But now, by grace, by God's wonderful, free, abundant grace, he sees. Let me ask you, Christian, does this describe you? Submitting to Christ's authority? Are you living your life in light of Christ's authority over your life? And I'm not asking if you've stopped sinning. If you tell me you've stopped sinning, I'd say the truth is not in you. That's what John says in 1 John, right? Chapter 1. If somebody says that that they have no sin, the truth is not in them. So I'm not asking if you've stopped sinning. None of us have stopped sinning, and none of us will stop sinning until we behold Christ in glory when we will see Him as He is and we will become as He is. What I'm asking is if you even care about the fact that you sin. Does it even bother you that you have to fight sin? And are you fighting it? That's another question. Are you fighting it? Are you like a person who wakes up as they're, they're closing the coffin, but they do nothing, but they, they just lay there as the coffin closes and they start to pour dirt over it? Are you making your sin flee? Are you cornering it? Are you trying to rip its heart out? Because you do know that Jesus has instructed us to go to war with our sin, Right? Does that describe you? Is that you? Are you living your life in light of Christ's sovereign lordship, His authority over your life? Because if you're not, what makes you any different from the world around you? Because Jesus has authority over us, we would be wise to respond to Him in humble submission and faithful obedience. All authority, including authority over all flesh. Christian and non-Christian alike, all authority belongs to Jesus on earth and in heaven. See, Christ's authority is not only over every human being, but He's also got authority over the angels, both heavenly and fallen. Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 say this. It says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Do you see the progression that Paul makes there? That everything, every being is going to do this. Those who are in heaven, those who are on earth, and those who are under the earth. This is referring to 
angels and heavenly angels and fallen angels. Satan and his hordes of fallen angels, what we call demons, are clearly included in what Paul writes here. Not only will the knee of every human being bow, and not only will their tongues confess that Christ is Lord, but so will His sovereign and the demons. They are all under His sovereign authority. They have no ability to tell them no when He tells them yes. And this is easily and most clearly seen in the Gospel passages where we read of Jesus casting demons out of people even when it's against the will of those demons. They couldn't even enter into a, a, a herd of swine without Christ's sovereign permission. If you're a Christian, this idea that Christ has authority over angels and demons and and every human being on the face of the planet, this should all be an incredible, incredible encouragement to you. We have three mortal enemies according to Ephesians chapter 2. The world, the devil, and the flesh. Well, Christ told us in the previous chapter, John 16, that He has overcome the world. Okay. Now He's telling us He has all authority over the flesh. Okay. And He also has authority over demons. So whom will you fear? What will you fear? Why should you fear? If Christ has all authority over all things, and if He loves you and is for you and in you. What would you fear but God Himself? In fact, so great is Christ's authority that even inanimate objects do whatever He says. And this is something that scared the disciples half to death when they realized it. Here were these seasoned fishermen out in this terrible storm that was so bad. These are seasoned fishermen. They've been in storms before. But this storm is so bad, they're convinced that they are about to die. But with one word, Jesus gets up and calms the sea and the winds, causing His disciples to fearfully mutter in Matthew chapter 8, verse 27. They say, what kind of man is this that even the winds... And the seas obey Him. Now if they asked you that question, what kind of man is this that even the wind and the seas would obey Him? If they asked you that, what would you say? Hopefully you'd say something like, He's the sovereign God of the universe in human flesh, and He has authority over everything in the universe. In fact, He has authority over every centimeter in the universe. So let's understand this, friends, that Christ's authority is universal. It's over everything in existence. Here, however, in John chapter 17, verse 2, Jesus simply prays that He be glorified in order that the Father would be glorified because the Father gave all authority over all flesh to Christ. Included in Christ's sovereign authority is His ability to tame, to subdue the hearts and the consciences of men. He directs their path the same way that a riverbed directs water. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He wishes. 
part of the point there is that a king has authority, right? And, and power. So part of the point here is that if the Lord can do this to the heart of even a king, he can do it to the heart and the conscience of whomever he pleases, whoever he wants. It probably looks on the surface, it probably looks like the king is choosing his own path, but only, only from our finite perspective. Anthony Burgess notes of Christ's authority over the hearts and consciences of men. He says, quote, It is by this their minds are enlightened, their hearts changed, their lusts subdued, and they are made new creatures. End quote. Now the truth about Christ's authority, friends, this should bring us great encouragement, great comfort. How many times have you found yourself Struggling with the desires of your flesh. Struggling with sin. Maybe a sin that you love, that you enjoy, but, but it's something you hate that you love it. You hate that you enjoy it. You don't enjoy the fact that you enjoy it. You wish you didn't, but you do. You find yourself helpless against it. You're going to war with it over and over and over again, but maybe it got the best of you again. And when you do find yourself feeling helpless against your sin, when it has pinned you down in defeat once again, and you're feeling as immovable as a mountain, like it's just a mountain sitting on your chest, what can you do? What refuge do you have? You can lift your eyes to Christ and you can plead with Him because He's the one who has all authority over all flesh, over all angels, heavenly and fallen. You can ask Him, Lord Jesus, You alone have sovereign authority over all flesh, including my own. So conquer my heart, Lord. Subdue the desires of my heart, Lord, as You alone can and be glorified in freeing me from the power that this sin has over me what prevents a person from praying that nothing prevents you from praying that so how does christ use this authority that he has over the hearts and consciences of people the primary way is spiritually to call a person to Him. His, his sovereign, effectual calling. To, to grant faith to us. To grant repentance to us. And this is the greatest miracle of all. That is the greatest sign. The greatest wonder. The greatest miracle of all. The greatest miracle of all is not creating the universe. Although, of course, that's an amazing miracle. The greatest miracle of all is not restoring a person's physical health if they're sick. Uh, the greatest miracle of all is not speaking in a language that you don't know. It's not blabbering with, with you know, some unknown syllables. No, the greatest miracle of all is the way that Christ subdues the hearts of His enemies, making them His friends. Filling their hearts within them. Making them a new creation in Him. That's the greatest miracle of all. See, Simon the magician thought, oh, I can use this power to, to really impress people. The Holy Spirit, His primary ministry is not to impress people with signs and wonders. No, they call Him the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of holiness because He's in us to produce holiness in us. He's there to teach us to grow like Christ. That is the greatest miracle of all. 
that we, fallen sinners, can be reconciled to God and that He can conform us into the image of His Son. And that is as different, our our fallen nature and Christ's perfect nature are as different as anything in all of creation. They are as opposite, as opposed to one another, as anything in all of creation. And yet, God has the sovereign power, the sovereign authority to do it. Now, Jesus once said that He came to seek and save the lost. And that's what He uses His sovereign authority to do. And we know that He doesn't save everyone, right? The the sad reality is there will be people in hell. So was Jesus' mission of seeking and saving the lost successful? See, if you take the idea that salvation is contingent ultimately upon a person's decision and depends entirely upon his free will to accept or reject, you'd also have to concede that Christ did not accomplish this mission. You'd have to believe that He tried to save as many as He could, and yet He could have saved more, so He failed. But this is where we must consider the second gift that the Father gave the Son. That second gift being a people. There is a particular, specific group of people that the Father, from all eternity past, has given to Christ. Now note that Christ doesn't say that He has authority to give eternal life to all who believe in Him, although that is true. Rather, He puts the emphasis elsewhere. What we're supposed to see here is that if anyone savingly believes in Christ, it's because the Father has first given that person to Christ as a gift. What a mystery this doctrine is that the invisible hand of God directs all of these people whom the Father gave to Christ to Him. We see Jesus speaking of His authority over the salvation of people in Matthew chapter 11 where He says in verse 27, All things have been handed over to Me by My Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And yet, this Word of God's sovereign authority over salvation is paradoxically immediately followed by a word of man's responsibility to believe. As Jesus says now to the people in verse 28, Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So first He says, I'm sovereign over salvation. Next He says, you have a responsibility to come to Me and to believe. The mystery of mysteries is that God is sovereign over our salvation and yet man does have a responsibility to believe. Jesus has the sovereign right in light of this second gift mentioned in this verse that the Father gave to the Son. Jesus has the authority to open the gates of one man's heart and to leave the gates of his neighbor's heart closed. He has the sovereign right to give Jacob ears to hear while leaving Esau deaf and to his own devices. He has the sovereign authority to look at a crowd of tax collectors and to call Matthew to leave his tax collecting days behind him while leaving all the other tax collectors in their line of work. Now I know that this doctrine of election gets people at a very emotional level and I understand that. 
But is there any injustice with God? When you're struggling with that question, when you're struggling with how it can be fair or just that God calls one man but not another, wrestle with this. Can God ever be unjust? The answer is no. Perish the thought. God can never be unjust. God is always good. God is always righteous. God is always just in everything that He does. And yet, Jesus makes it clear here that the Father has only given some to Christ, but not all. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. And that's not an unjust thing. If, if we start with the premise, if we start with just a basic understanding that nobody deserves grace, by virtue of the definition of grace, if somebody deserves grace, it's not grace, it's a wage. It's what they deserve. But if we start with the premise that nobody, nobody deserves grace, we see that God is perfectly just in giving some to Christ, but not all. After all, I mean, wouldn't we all agree that it would be fair to say that God would be perfectly just in condemning everyone, in sending all people to hell? Would God be just in doing that? Absolutely, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So it would be perfectly righteous, it would be perfectly just for God to send every person to hell. Then how can it be unjust for Him? to show mercy and compassion to some, but not to others. By definition, neither grace nor mercy nor compassion is deserved. It's not merited. Those who enter the gates of heaven do so by God's grace alone, by His mercy alone. Those who enter the gates of hell for eternity receive the just punishment for their sin. But nobody, nobody gets treated unfairly by God. One people receive grace and mercy, and one people receive justice. Nobody receives even the slightest degree of injustice from God. What prevented those who received justice? What prevented them? What stopped them? What got in the way of them getting on their knees and begging and pleading with God for grace and for mercy? Only themselves. Only themselves. So God gave Christ, He gave His Son a people, a specific group of people. This is said to have taken place, Ephesians 1.4, before the foundation of the world. They were given to Him in eternity past. They were given to Him not because of anything good about us, not because of anything worthy about us, not because of anything notable, but only according to the sovereign counsel of His own good his own loving, His own compassionate, gracious will. Jesus, back in John chapter 6, verses 39 and 40, says this of them. He says, This is the will of up on the last day. For this is the will of My Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I Myself will raise Him up on the last day. How does that happen? How do they, they come to Him? How does a person behold the Son and believe in Him? Jesus tells us then in, in verse 44, still in, in John chapter 6, when He says, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws Him, and I will raise Him up on the last day. See the parallelism? And I will raise Him up on the last day? It's the same thing. He's just saying it a different way. 
The Father must draw them to Christ. Now, if you're asking how the Father does that, uh, which, by the way, uh, implies a great use of force. When it says draws, it doesn't mean he's wooing them or trying to, to persuade them by, by any means possible to come to him. No, it's a, it's a use of force. But understand this, if you're asking how a person is drawn by the Father to Christ, understand that Christ not only has authority to ordain the ends, but he also has the authority to ordain the means to the ends that he has ordained. In other words, he not only ordains that this specific group of people will be saved, but for each one of them, he ordains when and how they will be saved. He he ordains who is going to preach the gospel to them, where they're going to hear it, when they're going to hear it. And to this end, Christ has authority to send us, to send His people out into the world to make disciples. But He not only has the sovereign authority to appoint a ministry, He also has the sovereign authority to bless a ministry. That is, He has the authority to cause one ministry to prosper and to use the preaching of the gospel in one ministry to to bear much fruit, while another may not bear as much fruit. And it's not the person preaching that converts somebody. You know, I don't have the ability to persuade anybody to believe in Christ on my own. Burgess notes again, he says, quote, It is not the ministry or ordinances, but Christ in them and by them, which communicates virtue and efficacy. End quote. There is no greater authority to be found in heaven or on earth than the authority that Christ Himself has. He's given us, on the basis of His authority, He's given us the Great Commission. The Great Commission is basically our marching orders until He returns. He's given us instructions for how to live and what to do until He returns. And among those things that we find in His Word is gathering regularly with the people of God. How foolish it is that any man or woman, any mere mortal, would give orders that contradict the marching orders that were given by Christ prior to His ascension into heaven. Now, you, re- you may remember the Nuremberg trials. You may have heard about it in history class. They were trials that took place after World War II. If a German soldier uh, murdered any, uh, any Jews, that soldier was held, held to account for doing so. And one of the primary excuses that the former members of uh, the, the German Nazi military would give for, for, for murdering people was, hey, I, I was just following orders. It, it's not my fault. It, you know, it, blame the guy higher up, right? But that argument held no weight. It did not exonerate anyone because the orders that they followed were contrary to a higher order. Thou shalt not murder. And so it will be when people like our governor and other tyrants who have attempted to usurp Christ's authority over the church over the course of the past two years, when they stand before the Lord in judgment one day, unless they repent, they will have an eternity of regret. He's given them authority to govern, but not to contradict Him. Nobody has authority to contradict Christ. 
Now when we understand these three gifts given here, mentioned here in this verse, it should change a lot of things for us. We learn that all power, all authority belongs to Christ our King. And we thus understand the need for us to live our lives in light of His sovereign authority. To live as if He really does have lordship over us. We learn that the Father gave Christ a particular people and we're humbled by the understanding that He has shown us such great grace and mercy that sinners as terrible as we are would be counted among that group. We see that He's given us eternal life in Him because of what the Father has given Him. And we understand that there's nobody else that we can turn to. That every other religious leader in the world throughout history can only offer eternal death in exchange for following them. See friends, when Christ gives a person eternal life, it brings us into joyful fellowship with Christ, with God, now, today, in the present. It's not something that we have to wait until we get to heaven to experience. It's not something that we have to wait until you know, we're more mature in the faith to experience. It's something that we possess the moment He saves us and turns our hearts and desires and affections toward the greatest good, Himself. Far from being just a a quantity of life, like eternal life is, you you can number the years. Eternal life is also a quality of life. We're going to see that when we get to verse 3. It's a life in which we find joy and contentment, both in comfort and in affliction. It's a life in which we are constantly waging war with the flesh, but we do so by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us and is constantly guiding us and directing us toward Christ. It's a life in which we learn to hate the things that we used to love. It's a life in which we learn to love the things that God loves and to hate the things that God hates. Is this thing called eternal life yours? Examine yourselves. Is it? Now, here's a trap that people will fall into. They'll just keep their eyes on themselves. And they'll say, when I examine myself, all I can see is, is sin. I can see the way that sin has dominated me. I can see that there are sins that, that, I, that I enjoy. I wish I didn't do them, but they're there very well. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about that? Because if you hate it, or if you're tempted to despair because sin has such a grip over certain areas of your life, know this. There's only one kind of person who hates sin. There's only one kind of person who goes to war with their sin. There's only one type of person who is tempted to despair because of sin in their lives. And that is the person who loves and savingly believes on Christ. It's the person who has been given eyes to see and ears to hear. It's the person who has been given by God the Father to God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you that kind of person? Consider your response to Christ. Do you believe in Him? Do you believe that He lived a sinless life and that He took your sin upon Himself in order to cleanse you of your sin? 
Will you go to heaven because of all the good things you've done? Or are you going to get into heaven because of what Jesus did in your place? Will you be among those who will bend the knee happily and will happily and joyfully confess that Christ is Lord of all? Or are you among those who will bow the knee and confess that Christ is Lord with with your tongue, even though you'd rather not? If you're not sure, or if your answer is no, let me just urge you to see how desperately you need Christ not only to be your Lord, which He already is, whether you want to act like it or believe it or not, but also to be your Savior. If you come to Him in faith, He has given us the promise that He will never, ever cast you away. The only thing that would ever stop you, the only thing that would ever prevent you from coming to Christ in saving faith is yourself. What I can say is that if you find Christ and Him alone to be so beautiful, to be so glorious, and so worthy above everything else of your love, of your faith, of your devotion, of your obedience, if you're living your life in joyful acknowledgement of His Lordship, of His authority over you, putting to death the deeds and the desires of the flesh, or at least trying to, It's because God the Father gave all authority to Christ to save a people given to the Lord Jesus Christ by the Father among whom you are included. Jesus is King of kings. Jesus is Lord of lords. But for those who were given to the Son by the Father, for those who have received eternal life in Christ. Jesus is also a wonderful and mighty Savior. Let's pray. Our most gracious, most merciful, most compassionate Father in heaven, we thank You for Christ. We thank You for Verses like this one that tell us that You loved us from all eternity past. A concept that we can't even begin to wrap our minds around. And yet, You loved us enough that You sent Your Son to stand in our place, to live the perfect life that we should have lived, that You instructed us to live, the life that You require for fellowship with You. And that you also sent him to die in our place. We thank you both for his active obedience and his passive obedience. And we pray, O Lord, that as we consider his authority, as we consider the fact that he is Lord of all, that we would have the courage to confidently proclaim the good news of his gospel the good news of what He has done to reconcile sinners, even vile sinners like ourselves, to You, a just, holy, perfect God who cannot look upon sin. Teach us, O Lord, to go to war with sin in our lives. Teach us, O Lord, to hate what You hate and to love what You love. 
to walk as you would have us walk. All in order that Christ would be glorified in our lives. In his name we pray. Amen.